You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is where you need to be. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, you might also mark Ephesians uh, chapter 6. If you put a mark there and then start in uh, Exodus 20, that would be great. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of one thing that we have coming up this weekend. Uh, This weekend is another round of redemption groups for us. And so as you're turning there, I want to make sure you listen to, to what I'm about to say here about redemption groups. Redemption groups are the most intensive place we have in our church to take the good news of Jesus over here, our sin and suffering over there, and to bring those two things together. Like it's, it's the most intensive place we have to show how everything is a gospel issue, that every part of our life, every little ounce of our lives needs the good news of Jesus over it, under it, and around it. It's the most intensive place we have to, to do that work. See, like when we say from a stage like this that everything's a gospel issue, here's what I think happens in a room like this. It sounds great, but it sounds very theoretical and abstract. And we all need help in doing the hard work of bringing what seems theoretical and abstract, the gospel applies to everything, down into the knit and grit of our life. We all need help in that. We all need help of applying and bringing the good news of Jesus to bear on our sin and suffering, your particular sins and suffering, my particular sins and suffering. We all need help in that. I mean, who doesn't need help in that this morning, right? We all need help in that. And redemption groups are a great place to get that help. So we do a three-day intensive thing where it's Thursday night, all day Friday, and then Saturday morning. And the point of that weekend is for us to help one another bring to bear the good news of Jesus on our lives, something we all desperately need. So we have a couple of spots still left for our ladies and our guys for that weekend. If you can make Thursday night, all day Friday and Saturday morning work, and I think it's worth really pursuing, how, how, what do I need to do to make that work? If you can make that work, I think it would be so, so beneficial for your soul. I think it would be so wonderful for you. So if if that's you and you can do that, we have a table set up in the foyer. Um, We'll have a guy up there after this service. Make sure you stop by and and figure that out. Um, What do I need to do to make that happen? Um, Again, I just wanna say that I think it would be a blessing to your soul if you would do that. So that's this weekend redemption groups. Okay, um, we are back in the 10 commandments. We are in commandment number four again. This is part two of commandment number four. So that means we're going to be in verses 8 through 11 of Exodus chapter 20. Let me read them and then we'll, we'll dig into them. <clears throat> Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is God's word. Okay, so if someone came to you and asked the question, what is the fourth commandment? What what is that? It would be perfectly appropriate. You should say, verse eight's the answer. 
you should say it is about Sabbath keeping. The fourth commandment centers on Sabbath keeping. Now let's just press that one step further and project them asking another question. They don't just say, what is the fourth commandment? They say, well, what does it mean to keep the fourth commandment? To get to that answer, you have to look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 answer the question, how do we keep the Sabbath day? How do we remember it? How do we keep it holy? Verse 9 and 10 are the answers. Now, verse 10 is what you would expect. It's what we preached on a couple of weeks ago. Verse 10 says, but the, but the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And here's the gist of that one day, that Sabbath day. On it, you shall not do any work. So we worked through that a couple of weeks ago, what it means to rest and enjoy God one in, in seven days. We talked about that six and one sort of a rhythm. And to keep the Sabbath, part of that is having that one day off, having that one day of rest where you're playing, you know, you're, you're engaging with God's gifts to you and you're praying, you're engaging with God. That's the Sabbath day. But that's not the only component of keeping a Sabbath. That's one component of remembering the Sabbath day. The other side of Sabbath keeping, there's two parts. The other side of that is in verse nine. And this is probably more surprising for us to consider. That if we wanna keep the Sabbath, it's not just keeping the one day distinct, but there's something to do with the other six days. So verse nine says this. This is the other part of Sabbath keeping. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. This commandment doesn't just mean that we're living in the purposes of God on one day, the Sabbath day. It means that we're living in the purposes of God for our every day, for all seven days. It means that we're thinking about what does God have for me every day? Not just the one, but in the other six. Maybe we could kind of bring out the point like this. If we're ever going to rest rightly, it means that we have to work rightly. If we're gonna rest well, it means we have to work well. If we get work wrong, it means we're always gonna get Sabbath keeping wrong. So there is something vitally important about getting work right, our six days right, if we're gonna rest rightly. If we lose sight of God's purposes for six days, we're gonna lose sight of God's purposes for our one distinct Sabbath day. So Sabbath keeping is not just about your one day of rest. It is also about your six days of work. And these things work together. It's that six in one rhythm. If we don't experience work well and do that well, we're not going to experience that one day of Sabbath keeping well. And if we don't experience that one day of Sabbath keeping well, we're not going to experience those six days of work well. They work together in that sort of a way. So here is my aim for us today. I want us to get a deepened sense of work. I want us to think about work, our six days, not just our one day, but our six days. I want us to think about that work. I want us to think work through this morning. And here's my hope for you and I this morning is that there would be a deepened sense of joy and purpose in our work. That there would be a deepened sense of our discipleship, like what God wants to do in us and through us in the, in the world is deeply interwoven with our work our six days of labor, that that is vitally important for our growth and maturity in Jesus. It's vitally important for what God wants to do with us in the world. So we're gonna start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then we're gonna go to Ephesians 6. So I'm gonna start with kind of working through a theology of work, making sure we kind of take a step back kind of see the storyline of the Bible and how work fits into that storyline. So let me say three things about a theology of work. Here's the first one. Part number one is God created work. And that's an important thing to see, that God actually created work. Okay, so, so God has designed work. Maybe we could say it like this. God likes work. If we take it a step further, we could say it like this. 
God is a God who works and God enjoys his work. This is the God, as he's, you know, the God presented to us in the scriptures. So you see this right off the get-go in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. In other words, in the beginning, God is working. He is doing stuff. And if you just kind of read the Genesis 1 narrative, you see that at the end of each day, God looks at his work that he does, and he says, that is good work. Like, it's not just God that's working. God is enjoying the work that he's doing. Okay, this is God as presented in the Bible. We have a God who works. And aren't we grateful that God works? This is a good thing that God works. You know, you can track kind of the storyline of the Bible through a God who works. So if you track kind of that 30,000 foot view of the Bible, it would go like this. God works in Genesis 1 and 2. We broke all of his work in Genesis 3. And then God begins the work of recreating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And one day God is going to return second coming, and he's going to fully set aright all of the brokenness that was our kind of contribution to his work. But we have a God who works. And part of what we're seeing in the opening pages of the Bible is what it means to reflect God. It means that we take on his image of a God who works and we reflect him by our work. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So here it is in the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 28. This is a God who works and then gives us work as a way of reflecting him. Genesis 1.28 says this, and God blessed them. So the context of verse 28 is a blessing. Now hear how God blesses them. He blesses them like this. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's work. Fill the earth. That's work. Subdue the earth. That's work. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All of that is in the category of work. God's blessing in Genesis 1 is, I'm going to actually give you work to do so that as my image bears, you can reflect me, a God who works. You go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Let me just point out two things in that Genesis 2.15 passage. I think a good illustration of what work is to be is, is gardening. Like think about what you're doing in gardening. You're harnessing the raw materials that make up creation and you're planting, you're cultivating and you're producing something out of those raw materials that is gonna glorify God and be good for other people. That's what work is. Harnessing the raw material out of creation, cultivating that, developing that, producing out of that for the glory of God and the good of people. So so gardening is a good illustration of what work is for all of us. And the second thing to notice out of this is contrary to how most of us feel about our work, work is not the result of sin. Work is pre-sin. So before sin ever showed up in the creation narrative, God has gifted us with work. So, So it's not a result of sin. It's pre all of the sin that happens. This is one of the many ways work. It's one of the many ways God is looking at us and saying, here's one of the gifts I'm gonna give you as a way to glorify and to reflect me as my image bears. So work is God's design. God created work. Here's the second thing we need to say about work. Sin has broken work. Just like everything else, sin's broken work. Work is a frustrating thing, isn't it? So frustrating. And that's explained in Genesis chapter three. After our first parents sin against God by eating the forbidden fruit, God shows up in the garden, confronts them, and he curses the serpent, he curses Eve, and then he curses um, Adam. And listen to the curse of Adam. This is Genesis chapter three, verse 17. And to Adam, God said this, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now that's bad news for a gardener, isn't it? Those are not words you want to hear about your work. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So like childbearing for Eve, like childbearing, work is now some sort of a mingling between pleasure and pain, burden and blessing. And if you have ever tried to like take the raw materials of this world, cultivate it, produce something good out of it for the glory of God and the good of other people, you know that it is a cursed work. It is hard, frustrating work. Verse 18, here's the explanation for why it's so hard. Thorns and thistles, this, this earth, you know, the, the ground, thorn and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat of it. That's how hard work has become. By the sweat of your face, that's how frustrating it's become. Till, uh, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall, re, uh, you shall return. Thorns and thistles make work hard, don't they? They make work frustrating. Sin has really broken work. It has made work really, really difficult. Now, in response to the difficulty of work, human beings, we respond to work in one of two ways. So work is now broken, and our brokenness responds to the brokenness of work in one of two ways. I think you could summarize it like this. Sin causes some of us to run from work. This is one kind of category of how we respond to our work. If you want the extreme version of this, this is a 30-year-old who's living in his parents' basement, watching TV at 2 p.m. in his Batman underwear, like the seventh rerun of SportsCenter. It's that moment. They're just, I don't want to work. I don't like work. This is better than work. Leisure is where life is. And if you want the less extreme version of that and more like where it would kind of confront most of us in the room, Where that I want to run from work mentality sets in is in this approach to work that says this. But at the end of the day, I'm just working for the weekend. The only reason I'm working is to get a paycheck. That's it. Work means nothing else to me other than it it provides an avenue for me to then get leisure. And listen, man, that, that is everywhere. That is a deeply ingrained feeling and vibe about work in our culture. And that is a dysfunctional vibe. It's a dysfunctional feel. That's not the way God would have us or want us to think about work. This running from work mentality is everywhere. And listen, man, our culture spends billions of dollars trying to get us to believe the lie that recreation and retirement, that's where life is gonna be found. So let's run from work and let's go find our life in recreation and retirement. And man, I'm not on a crusade against recreation or retirement. I'm actually for both of them in their proper place. But the the narrative of the Bible frames recreation like this. It's work, then recreation. Both of them are really important. Both of them are really good. Man, work is not our enemy. Work is a gift from God as a means God is giving us to glorify Him. I mean, just a a word to some of our younger, uh, especially guys in the room. And one step toward manhood for a young man is to get a job and to put your head down and to work really hard in that job. That is one good step toward manhood. Work is not our enemy. Recreation is not where life is going to be found. There's that six in one rhythm, right? We're we're not to have that approach of running from work, but it's not just that lie that says recreation is where it's gonna be found. It's retirement's where it's gonna be found. And again, I'm not on a crusade against retirement. I I want it in its proper place. I mean, there are good God glorifying and God honoring reasons as to why we can retire. Nowhere in the Bible are you gonna see God saying you have to work the same job for the rest of your life. But what you are gonna see in the Bible is God saying this, 
my mission needs to stay central for the entirety of your life. Until you die, my mission stays right at the heart of what you're doing. And here's the thing about the mission of God. It requires work. And if our idea of retirement is, it's gonna be all leisure and no work, that is not a God-glorifying view of retirement. That is that subtle belief that, that our, you know, subtle lie that our culture is trying to get us all to believe that in recreation and retirement, that's where life is gonna be found. And so for those who are on the verge and you're thinking about retirement down the road, you know, th there is God honoring ways to think about that. Namely, I'm not gonna do this job anymore so that I can contemplate how can I be used most effectively for the mission of God for the remainder of my life. That's a good God honoring motive for retirement. But our, man, our culture, our world is trying to get us all to believe that lie that man, recreation and retirement, that's where life is gonna be found. It's that run from work sort of mentality. And that's a wrong approach, but that's not the only wrong approach. There is that run from work thing, but sin also causes us to run to work to find our life and meaning. See, the run, the run from work people are saying this, I'm gonna make a little G God out of recreation and retirement, out of leisure. That is where life is gonna be found. But those who run to work are making a little G God out of their work. They're running to their work, demanding that it give them what only God could give them. And here's the thing, work does not have the capacity to satisfy the deepest aches of our soul. It just doesn't do it. And some of us are slaving away at our job, trying to find it there. Some of us are not just working our job, we are working for our life. We, we are working in an attempt to satisfy that deep ache of our soul for acceptance, for presentability, what we talked about last week, for that deep sense of presentability and justification. And we're, we're slaving away at our work to try to get that from our work. And God is saying, man, your work can never do that for you. Just like recreation can't do it for you, work can't do it for you either. And here's the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is it redeems work. And Jesus redeems our work primarily by redeeming us, by redeeming in us that tendency to wanna to run from work and find life in recreation or run to work and find life in our work. He saves us and redeems us from both of those two tendencies as we start to realize that we can only find life in Jesus. Those deepest aches of our soul are not gonna be satisfied in recreation or in work. Those deep aches of our soul are only going to be satisfied in the bread of life, in Jesus himself. That is our only hope to get those deep aches satisfied in us. And the gospel redeems that. It shows us that, that deep ache for presentability and acceptance, it's given to us in Jesus. That deep ache for rest on this other side, that is only given to us in Jesus. Those deep longings that we have, the good news of Jesus showing us that it's only in Jesus that those things will ever be satisfied. Aren't we grateful for the gospel? For the first time gives us a framework to actually approach work rightly. We're not trying to run from it, finding life in recreation, and we're not trying to run to it to find life in our work. We're finding our life in Jesus, and now we can approach work correctly and rightly. There's the theology of work. Now comes the question of, so, so what does work look like in our lives? So, so what does it mean to like actually do the work thing in a right way? To see that, we need to go to Ephesians chapter six. So flip forward to Ephesians chapter six. Now I wanna just give us some space to think work through. To think about what does it mean to approach work in the right way? We're not running from it. We're not running to it for life but we're actually gonna to, to go to it to glorify God. What does it look like to glorify God in our work? 
Ephesians 6, four verses, starting in verse five. Ephesians 6, verse five says this. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bond servant or is free. Now, before we jump into this passage, let me just say one, uh, one thing about the context of it. The context of this passage is slaves and masters. So in light of that, I just want to do a brief explanation of that issue, and then we'll, we'll move on to work. Um, it is estimated that at the time of, of the New Testament, that there were 60 million slaves in the uh, Roman Empire. So we're talking slavery on a mass scale. Now, it was different than what we would think of as the transatlantic slavery. It's a little different form of slavery. But at the same time, it, it was inhumane and a lot of unjust things going on with it. And so... I think it's important to clarify what is Paul's relationship to slavery and what is his view of, of slavery? And the first thing I would want us all to feel is this. Paul is not condoning slavery in this passage or any other passage. He is not condoning slavery. He does not approve of slavery. In Philemon, he, he actively argues against it. So he is not condoning slavery. But here's what I love about Paul. Paul is not just an idealist. He is also a realist. And, and he is waiting on a perfect world that God is going to restore. That's the work of God happening here. He is going to restore a perfect new heavens and a new earth. But Paul knows that he is riding into a very unideal world, a very broken world. And into that broken world, Paul presents the good news of the gospel. He brings the good news of Jesus to bear on a, a slave's life under an unjust and inhumane master. I, I think if I were describing what Paul is doing in this passage, I would say it this way. Paul is showing that the good news of Jesus even applies into the dark corners of our life like this, like slavery. It's not just um, parenthood at the first of Ephesians 6. It's not just marriage that the good news of Jesus applies to in Ephesians 5. It's even into unjust and inhumane situations like slavery that the good news of Jesus can be brought to bear, can actually be a help. It's a means of sustaining us and giving us a good perspective in it. That the good news of Jesus even covers situations like that. Now, let me just bring this text into like a 21st century application. Um, you know, to, to my knowledge, I don't think there's anyone in this room who is enslaved right now. Um, but there is a sense in which we are all selling a part of our week out to bosses and employers. And then we are showing up at that place of employment and we are working for them. And I think the 21st century application of this text would be to put it in that sort of a framework into employer and employee, that relationship. And in light of that, I think it's got some really rich things for us to think through here. So look at verse five. This is the command of the passage in verse five. The command is really simple. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Let's, let's put it in the 21st century application. Employees, obey your employers. Work hard for your employers, obey them. Now here would be a simple definition of obedience. It'll be on the screen for you. Obedience is immediately and joyfully following the lead of the one God's place in authority over you. So it's immediate. God is not looking for delayed obedience. Anytime we delay in our obedience, we are sinning before we obey, right? 
He's not looking for delayed obedience, but immediate obedience. It's joyful. God is not just concerned about us obeying, but the heart behind our obedience, that we're not begrudging, right? We're not, we're not there in our obedience, but there's a joyfulness to our obedience. And there's a following that comes with obedience, that we're not called to go into our workplace and, and write a four-page essay on everything they're doing wrong and what they should be doing right. That, that part of what it means to show up and be a good worker in a place is to show up and do the work that is set before us. Like one of the hardest lessons for me to, to learn back when I was doing youth ministry, it was a really humbling moment for me when I realized, dang, they didn't bring me in here to set the direction of this place. That was a really humbling moment for, for me to realize that they actually brought me in to carry out the direction they had set. Gosh, that was a humbling moment. But that's what following means. It means that we are willing to allow someone else to set the direction and then we joyfully get behind that and help move that ball as far down the court as we can possibly move it. And then there's this idea of God placing that authority in our life. That there is never going to be a person in authority over you that was not put there by God for you. And some of us are like, you saying my boss was put there by God? Are you sure about that? And the answer is yes to that. That there will never be a moment where your authority is out from underneath the authority of God. That God has placed them there. So obedience means joyfully and immediately following that leadership that God has put in our life. It's working hard in our place of employment. It's working with excellence in the place of our employment. It's working joyfully there. This is what it means to obey. Now this passage gives us two whys to that obedience and it gives us two hows to the obedience of work. So let me just run through these, the two whys and the two hows. Here is why number one. What, why do we obey? Why number one goes like this. We obey, like we joyfully and immediately follow the one that God's placed in authority over us in that workplace. We work hard in our workplace. We, we obey because work is worship to God. Because your work is one of the many ways God has said, I'm gonna gift you with this and I'm gonna allow you to glorify me in what you're doing, in, in your work. And you see this embedded into this passage. Look at verse five. So you're doing your work, how? As you would unto Christ. In verse six, as servants of Christ. Verse seven, as to the Lord. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? He is saying that at the end of the day, your work is not about you doing your kind of horizontal, like you obeying your boss. At the end of the day, your work has everything to do about how you're approaching God, how you're worshiping God. Work is one of the many ways that God has enabled us to worship Him. Work is all about worship. Work is a means of us worshiping God. What we do with our six days has much to do with how well our life is going to be a means of worshiping God. Your work is that vital to your worship. That if you, if you segregate these two things, you have done something the Bible does not allow. Those two things are meant to be together, your work and your worship to God. Now in saying that work is worship to God, I think it ties together two things for us. And here's the first one. That we can, Paul is showing us here in tying work with worship, that we can worship God in a wide range of work. See, part of what Paul is doing in addressing, now think about the context. He's addressing slaves in inhumane and unjust situations. Think about the menial type work that they're doing. No, no one's applauding that. No one's thanking them for that. It is, it is hard, menial sort of work. And Paul is saying that even in that work, you can worship God. 
See, Paul is looking at all the vocational domains out there, and he is saying, you can worship God in all of those vocational domains. I mean, just think about the various forms of work that are being done in this room. We have everything from builders to coaches to people who are changing dirty diapers, stay-at-home moms. We have everything in between in, in this room. It's all over the map. And Paul is saying all of that work, all of that work, doing all of that sort of work is ways that you can worship and glorify God. That work is worship. And all of those forms of work are means of worshiping God. Now, part of what that tears apart for us is something that needs to be torn apart in us. And it's that sacred secular divide in how we think about work. That there is a, a deeply ingrained feel that most of us have that if we're like doing work in the church, that's somehow more spiritual and somehow an easier way to worship God than if we're doing church, you know, work outside the church, quote unquote, secular work. And Paul's saying, that is not true. They are both means of worship. One of my favorite guys in church history is a guy named William Wilberforce. In the last 300 years, there are few people who have had a more profound influence on culture as you and I know it than William Wilberforce. And the crazy thing is nobody knows who he is. Um, he was alive in the late 1700s and he was a parliamentarian in England. So he was part of the political kind of elites in England. And, uh, and this was a guy who God used, he, he and his group of friends, to, to do a ton of work in, in waking an entire country up to the evils of slavery. And on Sunday, October 28th, 1787, he wrote this in his journal, which turned out to be really famous words that he penned. He said this, God Almighty has set before me two great objects. Here are the two great aims of his life, he is saying. Here's number one, the suppression of the slave trade. And here's the other one, the reformation of manners in England. So the reformation of manners would be a simple way of saying like in a modern day kind of application, it would be saying, man, our society is like on this downward like slope towards immorality and just how people are thinking and behaving. And I wanna be used by God to help change the trajectory of this place, to be back toward God in our behavior. So he's saying, here are the two great objectives. I wanna suppress the slave trade and I wanna reform the kind of the manners and the way we behave in England. And here is the crazy thing. God actually used him to do the first one. God actually used him to take a country who had no conscience about slavery, who had no guilty feelings associated with just absolute inhumane and, and injustice, no conscience about it. And God used this man and his group of friends to give a nation a conscience and to make it illegal in England to do that, which eventually influenced the rest of Europe and eventually influenced um, America. He used this man to start that whole thing. And you know the most amazing thing about it is William Wilberforce almost missed all of that. And listen to how he almost missed all of what God did with him. When he was 25 years old, he became a Christian. It was a moment of his conversion. For the first time, he's looking at God and thinking, I actually love God. I, I love Jesus. I've surrendered everything and given everything I am to God. Like that moment happened, all of these incredible affections begin to erupt in him for Jesus. So, so God saves him. And in light of that, he's wanting to make a difference with his life. He actually wants to make a difference for the Jesus that he loves. And do you know what his first assumption is? It's the same assumption that millions before him and millions after him has felt. I, I, I love Jesus. I wanna do something for Jesus. So surely that's gonna mean I'm gonna hang up politics and I'm gonna take up preaching. That's what he assumed in that moment. And ironically, a guy by the name of John Newton was a pastor in England, 
former slave trader, turned Christian, turned pastor, wrote the hymn, We Love to Sing Amazing Grace. And he corresponds with William Wilberforce and says, William, please don't go out of politics. Please do not do the preaching thing. Stay where you are. Convinced of that, William Wilberforce ended up staying in politics. He wrestles through it and ends up taking John Newton's advice. And he puts this in his journal in 1788. In light of just wrestling through, is it gonna be preaching or politics? He says, my walk is going to be a public one. My business is going to be in the world and I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seemed to have assigned me. Now I have just seen that little wrestling match play out way too often of a person has great affection for Jesus. They wanna make a difference for Jesus. So the natural assumption is I need to get in like the, the work of inside the church stuff. And, and I, Paul is saying, that is not true. Like, see, that reflects that, that we would assume, I love God, I wanna make a difference to God, for there, so therefore I need to take up like work like preaching, so, you know, sacred sort of work. That is betraying that we really think there is levels of work. We think this work is the really high and lofty work. That's where we can really worship God. And we think this work is kind of down here and low that we couldn't worship God in. And Paul is saying, all of our work, all of those different vocational domains, we can worship God in all of that. All of that is a means of worship. See, I, I don't think our reflex when we become a Christian and wanna do great things for Jesus, I don't think our reflex should be, that means I need to now do something different. I think the reflex in us should be like this. We wanna do what we're currently doing in a much different way, in a distinctly Christian way. See, that reflex should not be, now I need to know, go do, you know, Christian sort of work. It should be, I want to do the work that God has assigned me in a distinctly Christian way. That's what I want to do. And, you know, few people know that the Protestant Reformation, you know, at the heart of it was justification by faith alone. That's what it reclarified. But at the peripheral edge of it was the redeeming of work, kind of ripping apart this sacred, you know, sacred secular divide. Martin Luther was really passionate about that. Not just the justification by faith alone, but that work and all of its vocational domains are, are a way of worshiping God. And at one point he's walking through a small town and a guy came up to him and says, Martin Luther, you're not gonna believe it, but I've embraced this gospel that you're preaching. I've actually embraced this and I, I've become a Christian. Man, what should I do? And Martin Luther looks back and says, well, what do you currently do? And the guy says, well, I'm, I, I make shoes. And Luther looks back at him and says, well, here's what I think you should do. I think you should make the best shoe you can possibly make and you should sell it at a fair price. That's what you should do with your life. Now, do we have a way of thinking about work that would reflect that? That we can, like part of what it means to worship God and, and this is just as much as worship as God as preaching on a Sunday morning, that making a great shoe and selling it at a fair price is worship to God. That, that is working as to the Lord. That is working in a way that's glorifying God. That's working as servants of Christ, not as servants of men. And do we have a way of thinking about our work that way? See, this is the sort of redemption that God wants to bring to our work, that all of these vocational domains are a way that we can worship God. Here's the second why. Look at verse eight. Verse eight is the second why. That good work has a good reward. Good work has a good reward. And look at how uh, Paul talks about this reward. Verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, so you're in your workplace, no one sees anything that you're doing, but you keep producing good, excellent work. You're not slothful, you stay engaged and you get about the business that, that you have, you know, that's been put in front of you. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, 
This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Isn't that amazing? That God would look at your Monday morning. And I don't know what your Monday morning looks like from coaching to cleaning toilets, to changing diapers, to selling something, to whatever it is that you do. God would look at your Monday morning and say this, no one else may see you work hard in this moment. No one else may see you are working as an act of worship to me. No one, people may not compensate you for that like you would like. People may not applaud you for that like you were like. But God is saying in verse eight, I will reward you for every one of those things. I see it all. There's not one of those things that slipped past my attention. I mean, think how that would change how we approach Monday morning if we believe that. If we believe that regardless of if anyone sees any of our work or not, God does and we're gonna work for God today because he promises to reward good worshipful work. Think how that would change our Monday. I guarantee you, it would make some of us not be checking Facebook quite so much on the company hour, right? It would make us probably not get our fantasy football team all in perfect alignment on Monday morning at 9 p.m., right? The God is saying, man, I see all of that. I see sloth on one side that doesn't get rewarded. And I see good, worshipful work on the other. And I am promising you, I will reward that sort of work that's worship of me. So work has, good work has a good reward. Now for the two hows, and we'll be done. The two hows. Here is how number one. You see it in verse seven. Our work should render good service. Your work. Monday morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, our work should render good service. This is how number one, look at it in verse seven. The first two words, our work should be about rendering service, good service. Our work should be about producing things that glorify God and serve other people in really good ways. Our work should be about rendering good service. So I think there's two components of rendering good service in our work. There is a content component and a quality component. So God cares both about the content of our work and the quality of our work. So let's think through the content section first. Not every job is good. Not every job is. So there are certain criteria. Let me give you a grid that I think you should probably think through when you think of the job that you're doing. Here's the grid. I would put it in a three-part grid. There should be an upward component, an outward component to good work, and an inward component to good work. Upward, outward, and inward. The upward is, can this job glorify God? There are some jobs that by the nature of doing them, you cannot honor God. It's just gonna be dishonoring. Like you've got to sin to do the job. There are some jobs that are in that category. So the first question we have to ask is, can I actually go about doing this job and do that in a way that would glorify God? So that, that's the first one, that upward component. Then there's an outward component. Is this job good for other people? Does this job serve other people? Am I producing something here that betters and helps others? And I wanna encourage you with this. You know, I think that when you get into the, the, just the grind of doing a job, it is very easy for us to lose sight of how this job is, to, is connected into helping other people. And if you lose sight of that, you are going to lose sight of one of the things that should bring you pleasure in the job that you're doing. It's just really easy. You get kind of caught up in your work to just lose sight of. This is actually rendering a good service to people. I think about your job right now and just ask yourself the question, what, what, is, what is it about my job that is benefiting people, that is helping people? 
And if you don't constantly recall that and remind yourself of that, your joy in work is gonna have a way of just constantly diminishing in your life. That your work is meant to be, have this outward focus. It's meant to help and better other people. It's meant to be for the good of other people. So that's the outward component. And then there's an inward component. That there should be a sense of yes to us, like like how God has designed us in the sort of job that we are working. Like if you think about the various vocational domains out there, there are certain like sets of jobs. And, and inside this set of jobs, there's a lot of different jobs that would fill this sort of a thing. But there's certain sets and types of jobs that fit with how God has designed us. And we need to think about how has God designed me and what of these sets of jobs would be most appropriate for the design that God has given me. Like Laura and I were reminiscing about this last night. And if you know my wife, you know that if she was an accountant, she would already be dead and fired. Both of those two things. But if you put her in hospitality world, she is about to knock it out of the park. And there's a reason that fits her design. And if she tries to do something outside of that design, there is going to be a deep sense really soon of this is not working. This job is all pain and absolutely no pleasure for me. It was interesting. I read a study by a guy named Studs Terkel. Isn't that a heck of a name? God, you better be a heck of a man if you've got that name, Studs Terkel. And he wrote a book called Working, and he interviewed hundreds of people about how they feel about their job. And he found that most people live somewhere um, on this little scale between begrudging acceptance of their job or active dislike and hate of their job. That most people are on this end of like the scale. That like we wake up on Monday and it's like, well, I guess I've got to do it, but I hate every second about, you know, every second of this job. So it's that sort of a, a place where most people find themselves. And the question is, why is that? Why do we feel that way about our work? And I think one of the biggest answers to that question is that for most of us, work has turned into a mercenary affair. That the only thing we're thinking about our work is, is it giving me a paycheck or not? That's the only thought we have. Am I gonna make a paycheck? And is it gonna be a good one? It's totally a mercenary affair. We have nothing invested into this work. We, we don't connect it to the upward dimension, the outward dimension, or the inward dimension. We have none of those things in place. All we're doing is working for a paycheck. And whenever you work for a paycheck, that's the only motive you have in going to work. Your work will never be as pleasing as it is meant to be by God. It can't be if, you, if you're a mercenary. I love what Dorothy Sayers She was a well-known European writer. She said this, the habit of thinking of work as something one does to get money and position is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what would would happen if we begin to think about our work otherwise. Now listen to what she says here. People, and I, man, I, I so agree with this. She says, people become doctors these days, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to bring their family up in the world. People become lawyers, not necessarily because they have a passion for justice, but to bring their family up in the world. So that's a mercenary affair. I always used to laugh in college, in my first couple of years there, of how many people start out pre-med. Not because they care about helping another person, but because they're looking at the list of like, where can I bring in the biggest paycheck possible? Well, that one will work, let's do that. It's a total mercenary moment. Have nothing invested in it. There's no upward, outward, or inward thing there. It's totally a mercenary. Where can I make money? And I'm gonna do that. 
Listen, I'm not opposed to saying in the, in the vocational domain that would kind of suit my gift set, here's where I can best provide for my family. I'm totally good with that because you have something vested there. But when you turn work into just the mercenary, out of all of these things, what can I do that would just give me the biggest paycheck possible? You are sabotaging work. You are always gonna keep work from being what it is meant to be in your life. Now, to those who right now you're like, man, I hate my work. When I wake up on Monday morning, I wanna crawl back into bed because I can't stand the thought of going to work. Maybe you do need to change your job, maybe. But before you think about a job change, I think you need to think about this, connecting it to that upward dimension. Does this job glorify God? To that outward dimension? Does this job really serve other people? And to that inward dimension? You need to make sure it's connected to those things and you get your motives right before you go about job changing, right? So there's that, there's that content piece. God cares about the content. This is all in that rendering good service that God really does care about the content of our work, but he also cares about the quality of our work. God doesn't just care that you do work. He cares about what you do at your work and how well you do your work. And when it comes to the quality of your work, it doesn't mean that we have to go do a distinctly Christian job. It means that we need to do our current job in a distinctly Christian way, which does not mean that you accidentally drop tracks on your coworkers, you know, cubicle desk. It doesn't mean that. It means that you get about doing your job in an excellent way. That you actually do your job well that you make the best set of shoes that you can possibly make and you sell it for a fair price. I love what Dorothy Sayers goes on to say about our work and just idea of God cares about the quality of it. He actually wants it to be excellent work. She says this, she says, the church's approach to, to an intelligent carpenter. So a person in carpentry, here's the church's approach, she says. It's usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. See, the church traditionally says this, make sure you show up to work and you're not drunk and make sure when you're out of work, you're doing things that are okay, you're living a moral life. When she's saying, that's not the, the way a Christian should be counseling another Christian to work. Here's the first thing we should be saying about our work is produce good tables if you're a carpenter. She goes on to say, church by all means. Yes, he should be in church. And decent forms of amusement, certainly. But what use is all that if in the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? It is possible to insult God with our bad work. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. You see what she's saying? She's saying that we can't just think about the quality of our work and we're living a moral life and we're kind of just showing up and we're, we're okay. No, it's like part of what it means to do your work in a distinctly Christian way is you are doing your work well. You are not okay with mediocrity at your work. You are pressing for excellence. You wanna make your place a better place. You wanna do your thing, whatever you're producing, you wanna produce the best thing that you can possibly uh, produce. You wanna be the absolute best at whatever you are. Salesman, coach, whatever that thing is. 
You wanna do that to the best of your ability. That's what it means to glorify God in our work. God cares about work in those sort of ways. God cares about the excellence of our work. That's quality. God cares about the joyfulness that we do our work in. You can't read this passage without seeing that God doesn't just care about you producing good work. He cares about the heart that's behind that good work. You see it in verse five, a sincere heart. In verse six, from the heart. In verse seven, you're to render service from goodwill. Like God actually wants us to have a good heart at our work, to be joyful in it. Think about when you show up on Monday morning, eight o'clock, whatever time you get there, is there a joyfulness and a thankfulness and a gratitude for your work? See, if we're not careful, we're gonna be in that begrudging, complaining category when it comes to our work. And if we're there, we are not worshiping God in our work. Part of what it means to worship God in our work is to do it with excellence, but at the same time to do it with joyfulness. That we can step into work feeling this. I am doing this day's work for the glory of God and the good of other people regardless of what happens. That is part of what it means to do good work that worships Jesus. Here's the second how and we're done. The second how to our work is our work should render good service without exception. So we are rendering great service joyfully with excellence. And that happens without exception. We are obedient in our work, hardworking in our work without exception. See, I mean, think about the context again. Paul is writing to slaves in very inhumane and unjust situations. And if this passage would apply to them, it would definitely apply to every one of our employee, employer type relationships regardless of how bad your boss is. See, the, I think this would be the heart of Paul's message. The quality of your work is not dependent upon the quality of your boss, the quality of your employer. It's not dependent upon that. See, we don't work hard because our boss is reliable and trustworthy. We work hard because the God who placed our boss there is reliable and trustworthy. See, it's doing, doing excellent work with joy even when our boss is not good to us. That is one way that we are looking at God and saying, God, I trust you. It's one of the ways that trust in God, faith in God plays out in our life. See, our work is not dependent upon our employer. It's depending on the God who stands behind our employer. This is work. And by God's grace, I am praying that there would be a deepened sense in your heart and my heart of Man, work is important. If we're ever going to keep the fourth commandment, that there's gonna be that sixth on laboring in six days so that we can rest rightly. And that resting rightly will propel us into the week to work rightly, which propels us back into resting rightly, back into working rightly for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Now I wanna give you just a moment to allow the Spirit to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And And as we finish the service, we're going to do a couple of things here. And the first one is, you know, I know that we have many in our church family right now who are desperately needing a job. You're without a job. You're desperately needing a change in job. And if that's you, would you just mind, would you mind standing up right, right there where you are? If that's you, this morning, you're, you're in need of a job. Yep, anybody else? Thank you. Others? Who else? Just go ahead and stand up right there where you are. If you're this morning, say, man, I, 
I am really in a position where I need a job. I need God to come through with a job. Anybody else? Absolutely no shame in that, by the way. Anybody else? They're just saying that I need a job. I want to take a moment to pray for you. And if you're around them, you might just put a hand on them and pray with me for them. And I want to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters who need God to provide a job. And so, Father, would you please do that for the brothers and sisters who are standing right now? God, we know that when it comes to finding a job, there is a certain amount that we can and should be doing to pursue it. But at the end of the day, we know that only you open the right doors that that allow us to actually get a job. And God, we are asking, we want to be like little kids asking their dad, pestering their daddy. God, will you please give these men and women the jobs that they need? God, will you open the right doors and the right places and the right jobs that they could have that upward, outward, inward sense of this is right and this is good. God, would you please give them a job? God, would you do that soon? God, will you move heaven and earth to work on behalf of these men and women to provide for them? You can go ahead and sit down there where you are. And and for the rest of us in the room, I just can't help but believe that for many of us, we are in desperate need of a radical kind of reorientation to our work. We have grown kind of into that begrudging sort of complaining mentality, just lost the sense of joy and pleasure in that sense of thankfulness for our work. And I think right now would be a good time to ask your heart, God to restore that. I mean, just think right now about all the ways God has blessed you by giving you your work, your job. We'd be asking God right now to restore to us a sense of thankfulness and gratitude for that. That we would be repenting of sloth in our work, laziness in our work, the wrong heart even underneath that in our work. So God, might you restore to us that sort of gratitude and joy in it? And we get to end our service by taking communion which means we get to consider and and just celebrate the work of God for us in Jesus. That we have a working God. That the storyline of the Bible is God created, we broke it all in our sin, and God is about the work in his son Jesus of restoring what we have broken. That God is about the work in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of putting back together this broken world, our broken world, our broken work, our brokenness personally, that God is about doing that. And as we dip the bread in the juice and take communion this morning, we're celebrating that God works, that God is working for you, that God is working for me, that we have a God who is willing to slaughter his own son so that we could be put back together. Yet God is a God who who works in such a way where he would abandon his own son so that he could make you and I his sons and daughters that Jesus lived perfectly. He died in our place and for our sin, all of God's wrath being poured out on him so that all of God's affection could be poured out on us. This is the work of God that we get to celebrate in communion. And it is this work of God that allows us to approach work rightly. It's this work of God that frees us from that tendency of running from work, that tendency to run to work for life. It frees us to, to, to get to know this God who says, in me is life. I I am life. Come and have me. God's work opens up the relationship 
from us to him, where all that we want out of our work or all that we want out of running from work can be found in him. That's the work of God for us. And so Father, will you, will you convince us to that? God, will you, will you convince us that your work is what we really need if we're gonna ever approach our work rightly? God, and will you help us even now in this moment to be amazed yet again at your work for us? To be, at, to be floored, to be laid low by your grace that would look at us rebels and rather than crushing us would come in the person of your son who lived perfectly, died in our place, rose again from the dead so that we could become sons and daughters. God, would you floor us with that? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.